0: Exodus is at the beginning of your Bible, it's the second book, right after Genesis. We're going to be in chapter 15, chapter 15. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the big numbers are the chapters and the small numbers are the verses. We're going to be in verses 22 through 27 this morning. Uh, But let me give you some context first. So uh, if you think about the the book of Genesis, it tells the story of our creation, uh, how God created uh, the universe and and everything in it. He created uh, the first two humans, Adam and Eve. And uh, the story progresses, man sins, rebels against God, Uh, eventually there's a flood uh, God begins the world again through Noah and his family and then there comes this guy named Abraham and there's nothing special about Abraham. God just chose him uh, out of his own good pleasure and he told this man Abraham, whose name at the time was Abram, he said, through you I am going to make a people for myself. I'm going to create a people for myself. Uh, there, It's going to be so large, this people that I'm going to create through you, that uh, they're going to be as numerous as the stars in heaven and as numerous as the grains of sand on the beach. And through this nation, I am going to send someone who will be a blessing to all nations. So God promises this man, Abraham, that he is going to create a nation through his line. And he is going to... Uh, place these people in a land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. Uh, But the problem is Abraham and his wife are pretty old and so they don't know how that's gonna happen. Uh, But God eventually comes through on that promise and they have a son and all along the way this promise gets threatened over and over again. And so we have uh, some of Abraham's descendants, about 70 of them, they end up in Egypt and uh, because there's, there's a famine in the land where they're at, so they go to Egypt through some sovereign crazy circumstances through a guy named Joseph. I encourage you to read about that if you haven't, and uh, they began as 70, and now as we come to the book of Exodus, they have multiplied tremendously, uh, but because they have multiplied, uh, they are a threat to the government of Egypt, so Egypt ends up enslaving these descendants of Abraham who are now called the Israelites or the Hebrews. So they're enslaved in Egypt and this has happened for, uh, they have been enslaved for over 400 years uh, by the time our story picks up in Exodus, 400 years. So again, the promise is threatened that God made to Abraham. But God raises up a deliverer named Moses. And God uses Moses to bring his people out of Egypt through uh, great miracles and works of wonder, the 10 plagues as we know it. And uh, the, the final plague, the 10th plague, was uh, the plague of death where the firstborn son of everyone in the land would die unless they had the blood of a lamb that covered their doorpost. They would be saved uh, through the blood of a lamb and so the Israelites do this and they're saved and as they are fleeing uh, Egypt because Pharaoh had had enough by this point, they they go and they come up against the Red Sea and Pharaoh changed his mind and he said, I'm going to pursue them, I want them back, that's my workforce and what does God do? He parts the Red Sea and God's people go through the Red Sea on dry ground and as Pharaoh's army tries to pursue them God closes up the water over Pharaoh's army and so now they're on the other side of the Red Sea and the first thing they do is sing right the verses before uh, our passage is a song this is the first song of God's redeemed people right and so they sing because of God's great salvation. By this point, there's over 2 million of them, and they're all singing together, right? They're singing about God, they're singing to God, they're singing corporately, right? And, uh, and then we come to our passage in uh, verse 22. Now, Here's the main idea for today's message. It's it's that now that God has saved his people from the grip of Egypt, he begins the work of sanctifying them through a series of tests in the wilderness. So that's where we're at now. God has saved his people. Now he's going to shape and form his people so that they're ready for their inheritance. So let's begin by reading our passage, Exodus 15, verses 22-22. Through 27. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah, because it was bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, And the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord, your God, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, it is amazing how fast we go from praising you to complaining, from gratitude to grumbling. We certainly see a picture of ourselves in the Israelites, so we pray that you bring us both conviction and comfort, both sanctification and salvation as we look to your word this morning. Open our eyes so that we see you rightly. Grant our minds understanding so that we can properly grasp the truth of this passage. Cause our hearts to trust and believe all that you have to say to us in your holy word. And please help us to see Christ. We pray that you remove all distractions, that you give us the grace to put away all fear and doubt and anxiety so that we can focus on you, Lord. Capture our mind's attention and our heart's affection this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So there was a wise old farmer working beside the road when a family moving to a nearby town stopped and asked them if, if the town that they were coming upon was friendly. Uh, the farmer could not really say, but this family continued to press them. They really wanted an answer. And the farmer asked this family, well, what was the town like where you came from? And they replied that it was terrible. The people there were rude. They were small-minded. And the old farmer replied, well, that's just how you're going to find them in this town. Uh, And the family was very disappointed, and they continued on their way, and the farmer returned to his work. Uh, Not too long uh, later, another family came along and asked the farmer, what sort of people live in the next town? The farmer asked this family as he did the other, and they said, "Uh, well, uh, they were the best people in the world. They were hard-working, they were honest, they were friendly. I'm, I'm sorry to be leaving them. And the old farmer uh, said, fear not. That is just how you'll find them in this town. You see, friends, it's, it's easy for us to think that our problems are outside of us, right? Uh, we think that they're external. We, we complain about our circumstances, uh, about the people in our life. We complain about our spouse, about our boss, about our job, we complain about where we live, we complain about who's in office. We think if these things were different uh, everything would be okay. If this person would just get out of my life, uh, then I'd be happy. If I, if I actually just found the job that I like, I won't be so grumpy when I come home. Until then, I'm gonna grumble and complain. Uh, but what we'll see from our passage today is that bitterness doesn't spring from bitter water, it doesn't arise from our circumstance, bitterness is rooted in the heart. Uh, We'll see that as we look at the beginning of Israel's journey through the wilderness. So now that God has saved his people from the grip of Egypt, he begins the work of sanctifying them through a series of tests in the wilderness. And so today we're going to look at the first test where the only water that the Israelites have to drink is poisoned. Now, let's not forget what's happening here. Uh, let's not forget what's happening in Exodus. Uh, what's happening here is a picture of Christ's saving work. That's, that's what all the Old Testament is. All the Old Testament is Christ, Christian scripture, right? This is what the apostles used to build the church. So, We see that it's a picture of Christ's saving work. He is the true Passover lamb. He is the one who has been judged and buried in the depths of the sea. But he is also the one who has parted the seas and has crossed through safely to the other side, securing the way of salvation for those he leads out of bondage. So Exodus is a picture of Christ's saving work. And if it's a picture of Christ's saving work, we can be sure that it's a picture of the Christian life as well. Uh, We have been saved from bondage, and we are on a pilgrimage to a place where we will dwell with God forever. And and let's not disconnect what's happening here from our lives as Christians. Uh, Because if we do, then a Jewish rabbi could come up and preach this passage, right? Oh, this is about Christ. So we're going to see that today. So with that being said, let's begin by by looking at this first test of the Israelites. If you're taking notes, the title of today's message is From Gratitude to Grumbling. And the first point of the sermon today is Bitter Water. Now, the Israelites have just witnessed some of the most amazing events that have ever taken place in the history of the world. They have seen God pour out His judgment on the Egyptians through the ten plagues. And they have experienced salvation from Pharaoh's relentless pursuit of them. Uh, God saved them by making a path through the Red Sea so that they, the Israelites, all two million of them, uh, could pass through safely to the other side. And when they had made it through, God closed the waters over those who were pursuing them so what do they do they sing a song of salvation just like we were singing about what Jesus has done for us this morning they they were singing about God's salvation so in response to God's redemption uh, God's people praised they worshiped this is what we do as God's people Uh, we can't help it it just wells up within us and we we sing some of us sing really good A lot of us sing really bad, but we all sing, right? This is what we do. So together we sing to God and we sing about God as a response to his grace and mercy and love towards us. This is what worship is. It's a response to what God has done for us. So in joy, the Israelites set out for their new home in Canaan. Uh, Through Moses, God is leading his people to the promised land. But first, they must go through the wilderness. This is where God will test them. This is where he's going to prepare them for their inheritance. The wilderness is going to be their boot camp. This is going to be uh, their university where they are purged of Egypt. And they learn to trust and obey Yahweh. Yahweh is the covenant name that God has given his people. And in your Bible, it'll probably say LORD in all caps. Every time it says Lord in all caps in your Bible, know that it's using the covenant name of God, Yahweh, the, the name that God gave Moses at the burning bush. And if we could define Yahweh, it would be defined as I am who I am, meaning that God is self-existent. He, he is not defined by anything outside of himself. He is eternal. He is the only one who is truly free. He is who he is. He, is who he has always been he is who he is now and he will be who he will always be he is Yahweh he is Yahweh and there is no other and this is what he's been teaching them all along as he put down all the false idols of Egypt through the 10 plagues so our passage says that the Israelites are three days into their journey three days when they run out of water Uh, now we all know the importance of staying hydrated right especially in desert climates. This is really important in 29 palms. Uh, We try to drink a gallon of water a day, that's like the normal rule for everyone. Uh, But many of us don't know what it feels like to be completely out of water. Uh, Think about two million people and all of their animals, completely out of water. They need water. This is a pretty big deal. But just as panic starts to set in, they see some water on the horizon. And the first ones there, they bend down to drink some of the water and they immediately spit it out. It's contaminated. It's, it's, it has an overwhelming amount of mineral salts in it. It's bitter. So the Israelites named the place Marah, which means Bitterness. These poison pools of water can actually still be found in the area where it's believed that the Israelites uh, journeyed through. Now, what's interesting about all of this? What's interesting is that God is the one who led them to this place, right? Just a few passages before, we see that, that God leads them through, a, through pillars of cloud and fire. This is how he's leading his people. It's not like he was distracted. It's not like God was distracted by some supernova that happened in some distant galaxy, right? And he was like, ooh, how'd you guys end up there? Right? No, he knew exactly where they were at because he was leading them there. God led his people to the bitter waters. God led them to Mara. And I wonder if you've ever been to Mara. Not the place Mara, but to a point of, of where life is just bitter, making you bitter. Maybe there now. And it's tempting to think that God has nothing to do with your situation, right? But you would be severely underestimating God's providential involvement in every detail of your life. You are where you are. You are experiencing what you are experiencing by God's good hand. He has led you to Mara. He has led you to the bitter waters. But the question is, why? Why does God lead His people to Mara? And that's what we find out in our next point, which is bitter hearts. Bitter hearts. Now, what are the people's reaction to this dilemma? Is it, oh, this is... This is no big deal. We've seen what Yahweh can do, right? Let's just call out to him and he'll he'll fix all this. He's going to take care of us. Unfortunately, it's not. Uh, Verse 24 says they grumbled against Moses. Now, it's not a problem that they had concerns about the water. Uh, It's not even a problem that they went to Moses About their problem. I mean, he's their leader, so it's not really, uh, that's not really the issue. The problem is their attitude. They're grumbling and complaining, they're bitter. And this is a disposition that we're going to see over and over again if if you read through the rest of the book of Exodus. uh, This is a disposition we see of the Israelites as they wander through the wilderness. But their attitude wasn't the only problem. Their hope for help uh, was misguided, wasn't it? Ultimately, they were looking to Moses to solve their problems. You see, they, they still had the slave mindset that relied on Egypt to provide for their every need. Even though they had been radically saved from the grip of Pharaoh, vestiges of his power still lingered In their hearts and minds. But we can also see that they were forgetful, right? I mean it's only been three days since the parting of the Red Sea. Three days. The same God who controls the winds and the waves can surely solve their water problem. The psalmist says looking back on this Exodus event uh, many years later in, in Psalm 106, Verse 13, it says, but they soon forgot his works. They soon forgot his works. There was a lack of maturity present in their grumbling. Like a child, they couldn't see past their their current circumstance. And of course, their lack of faith is glaring. For months, they had been sitting through the class, Character of God 101. And yet their faith had not caught up with their theology. Their anxiety was really a result of functional atheism. Meaning that they were responding to the situation as if Yahweh did not exist. They were were functional atheists. Now earlier I asked the question, why does God lead His people to bitter waters? And the answer is to show them their bitter hearts. Their grumbling was directed at at something external. Their grumbling was directed at another person. To them, the problem was outside of themselves. But God wanted to show them uh, was that the cause of their grumbling was internal. It was their heart. Verse 25 tells us that this whole event was a test, a test to reveal their heart. Uh, But God always has a purpose in mind when he tests his people, doesn't he? And his purpose is sanctification, sanctification. He wants to to purge them of Egypt and prepare them for their inheritance. Now, Now that God has saved them, he will begin the work of forming them. So, verse 26 gives us a picture of what this formation should look like. In this verse, God gives his people sort of a a mini covenant that contains both promises and cursing, as all covenants do. The covenant is a preview of what's to come at Mount Sinai, where they get the Ten Commandments and the law. Uh, But it makes clear that God's people are to be loyal and obedient. Now, here's the thing for us to not forget about this. God gives these commands to people he has already saved. Right? Don't miss that. He is not saying, do this and I will save you. He is saying, because I have saved you, this is how you should live. So, God is purging his people of Egypt... And he is forming them as his people by testing them in the wilderness. There's no shortcut to Canaan. The way to triumph is always through tribulation. Now, I wonder how the disciples of Jesus would have read this passage. Think about the disciples of Jesus. They probably thought, why didn't our forefathers get it? Why couldn't they just trust in God after all the miracles they just witnessed? But then we see them doing the exact same thing, don't we? Uh, you would think that after the feeding of the 5,000, which was this men, it was probably like 25,000, if you include the men, uh, women, and children, you would think that they would not have a doubt as to how to feed a large crowd of people. Uh, but then they find themselves in that situation again with fewer people, and they're like, Jesus, what are we going to do? How are we going to fix this? You see, a mark of maturity is when we stop wondering if God is going to act on our behalf, and we just start wondering how he's going to do it, because we know he is. I know you're going to work this out, God. I don't know how you're going to do it, but I've seen you do it before, and I know you will do it again. But we're no different than the disciples or the Israelites, are we? When we find ourselves at Mara, we grumble, we complain, we think that this circumstance or, or this person is the problem, and, and we act like this, because we, like Israel, we're also forgetful. We also lack maturity and faith. We look to man to solve our problems instead of God. We lift leaders on a pedestal and we believe that they can do for us what only God can do for us. Listen, your pastors here love you very much, but they are not your Savior. They are not your Holy Spirit. Anytime somebody has viewed me like that, it's always ended up bad because I could never do for them what only the Holy Spirit can do. And then... When we discover that these leaders are, are sinful, flawed human beings like the rest of us, we grumble and complain about them. So God often has to lead us tomorrow in order to root out the bitterness of our hearts. He he tests us so that we can go from grumbling to gratitude. He wants us to learn how to remember when we find ourselves at the bitter waters what are we to remember his character his glorious deeds his salvation he wants us to mature at Mara. how by expanding our time horizons by teaching us how to look beyond the present circumstance and look forward to his provision of 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees as we see in our passage that was coming for them they just needed the the maturity the expansion of their time horizons to see beyond their present circumstance but not only that he wants to build our faith by by teaching us to trust in the creator to meet our needs instead of creation. And in all of this, he is forming us to be loyal and obedient to all that he commands, no matter what we face. So, friend, if you're at the bitter waters, trust God is is working for your good and conforming you to the image of his son. Open your eyes to what he, he is teaching you here so that your grumbling will turn to gratitude. Trust that God will always turn your bitter water into sweet water, which is the next point of the sermon, which is sweet water. Look at verse 25. We see that Moses' response is different than the people's response. Moses had learned how to cry out to Yahweh. His lament was properly directed. He laid out his complaint to the Lord with with proper disposition, with a respectful attitude. And this is how the Psalms teach us to pray, don't they? That, That we can just lay our complaints before the Lord when we find ourselves that morrow. Now, it's never right to be disrespectful to God in our prayers, but it's certainly okay for us to be raw before him, right? I wonder how Moses may have cried out to God. Maybe it was like this. Maybe it was, Lord, please hear my cry. Why have you led us here? You saved us, but now it seems like you have turned away from us. Oh, I know that's not true. But that's what it feels like right now, God. Please help us. I know you will. For you said you will never leave us or forsake us. Amen. Now, however Moses prayed, we know that God answered him by directing him to a tree, to a log, and he was to throw this log into the bitter water. And when he did, the water became sweet. It was drinkable. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled over uh, how this log made the water drinkable. A lot of commentators say that the tree that Moses threw into the water had some sort of natural healing properties and it cleansed the bitter waters. Uh, While God can certainly use uh, a medium, a nature as a medium for his miracles, just like he did the east wind to part the Red Sea, the text doesn't say that there was anything special about this tree. Moses simply acted in faith And God miraculously healed the bitter waters. The people drank and they were satisfied. But they weren't to settle at Marah. Marah was a pit stop. Marah was a place of testing, of of teaching and, and forming. as verse 25 through 26 make clear. So God led them from Marah to a place called Elam, a place of abundance, right? There was an oasis with 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. Uh, A spring for what? For each tribe, right? For each tribe of Israel. And a a date palm tree for each elder. Uh, God will provide for his people exactly what they need in great abundance. Now, What's interesting here is that God would answer the complaints of those who were just grumbling, right? We see a picture here of God's patience, of His steadfast love, of His mercy, and of His grace towards the people who didn't deserve it. In fact, they didn't do anything to merit their salvation in the first place, did they? God's call to obedience comes after he saves them. So don't overlook the mercy and patience of God in this passage. It's encouraging to know that when we get it wrong and we respond to the bitter waters with grumbling, that he is gracious towards us. And this shouldn't surprise us though, right? What does Romans 5, 6 say? For a while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Which is us. We're the ungodly. God demonstrates his love towards us, the ungodly, by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. We did not and could not earn our salvation. We weren't seeking after God. We were dead in our sins. But God came to where we lived. The Father sent the Son to put on humanity so that He could rescue humanity from its bondage to sin. We were held by the grip of Satan and destined for an eternity apart from God. But in love, we were purchased. We were redeemed. We were saved. And may we never stop being overwhelmed by the patience of God, by His steadfast love, by His mercy, and by His grace. May we never stop displaying these same attributes in our own life. How many of us need to reflect these attributes with those who are hard to love? With those who just don't get it? With those who have treated us the way we have treated God? In mercy, Yahweh brings healing to His people, people who are undeserving. But this is God's nature. He is the healer of His people. In fact, God reveals His name as healer in our passage. In the original, it's Yahweh Rophi in verse 26. Not only is this in reference to God healing the bitter waters, but it's also in reference to Him healing... The the diseases of Egypt. Now it's important to note that God does heal sickness and disease. We have a lady in our church with stage 4 cancer and we pray for her all the time that God would heal her and we believe he will. So we should pray to him and ask him for healing. He doesn't promise to heal every sickness this side of eternity, right? But one day he will wipe away all disease from his people. But looking at the context of our passage, what's being referred to here is a certain kind of disease. The disease of judgment. God has, in fact, saved them from judgment, from the judgment he poured out on Egypt. He saved them from that. He was their physician protecting them from the plagues. But his healing is also connected to this mini covenant that's in our passage. Notice that connection there. A covenant which makes clear there is judgment for disobedience. So what is God saying here by connecting his name, Yahweh our healer? What is he saying by connecting Yahweh our healer to this covenant of blessing and judgment? Well, that's what our next point is about, sweet healer. If you continue reading about Israel's journey through the wilderness and eventual settlement in in Canaan, in the Promised Land, what are you gonna discover? You'll discover that they did not diligently listen to the voice of the Lord. They did not do right in his eyes. They did not give ear to his commands they did not keep his statutes so what's to become of them after God made this promise or this covenant with them well in about a thousand years from the time period of the exodus they would be exiled to Babylon to modern day Iraq as a form of discipline for their rebellion and idolatry But what about suffering the disease and judgment mentioned in our passage? What about that? The judgment that they deserved for their disobedience. The judgment that not only they deserve, but that we deserve as well. All of mankind deserves this. The 10 plagues of Egypt, friends, are just a small preview of the judgment God is going to pour out against all those who have rebelled against him, because he is a just God. But in regard to the covenant made with God's people in our passage, have they or will they face the disease of judgment for their disobedience? To answer this question, we need to look to the New Testament when Jesus begins his ministry, he virtually wipes out all sickness and disease from the land. And he does this for several reasons. One reason is, he does it because he loves the people. He has compassion on them. But the healings and miracles of Jesus were meant to identify him as the promised Messiah, as the Son of God, as the one who is himself, Yahweh, Rofi. The Lord, our healer, who would heal His people from their sins, as the prophet Isaiah makes clear. As the Lord, our healer, He would stand in the place of all those God has called to Himself. Jesus, the true Israel, the true Son of God, succeeded where Israel failed. He, like Israel, went into the wilderness to be tested after being baptized, after passing through the waters. Israel would be tested for 40 years. Jesus would be tested for 40 days. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded in their place. He did not fail to trust and obey God, even when he was tempted and tried. He did not grumble or complain when he was hungry or thirsty, but trusted in the Father and was sustained by every word that came from the mouth of the Lord. He looked beyond Mara. He looked beyond his current suffering and remained loyal and obedient to the Father. He is the true and better Israel who passed the test in the wilderness. He is the true and better Adam who did not listen to the serpent in the garden but crushed its head in the garden. Where we have failed, Jesus has been faithful. He perfectly obeyed everything in our passage, uh, 15 verse 26. He obeyed all of it where we could not. But not only that, Jesus, our healer, He took upon Himself the diseases of the plagues that Israel deserved. That we deserve. And God will put none of the diseases of Egypt on us because He places them on His Son instead of us. And just as the tree was thrown into the bitter water for its healing, Jesus was nailed to a tree And thrown into the bitter waters of God's wrath so that he could absorb all of the judgment that was meant for us. He drank the bitter cup that was reserved for you and for me so that we could drink of the sweet water, of the living water, and be healed of our sin. And in our healing, find forgiveness and reconciliation with God, eternal life. And Some of you here today have have never drunk from these waters. But perhaps you're here today because you're thirsty. You're broken. You know that something is wrong and you can't fix it. Sin has made a, a wreck of your life and the reality of your separation from God is very apparent to you. Jesus, the Lord, our healer, is offering you sweet water, living water. Turn from your sins and trust in Christ. He is mighty to save. Revelation 22, verse 17 says this. The spirit and the bride say come, and let the one who hears say come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life, without price let's pray Lord God we thank you for your word help us to remember that you are the one who leads us to the bitter water for our good for our sanctification so that we can grow in our dependence and trust in you in our times at Mara bend our hearts toward you in prayer So that like Moses, we can cry out to you and be healed of our affliction. Grant us the grace we need to remember your faithfulness to us. So that during our times of testing, gratitude will roll off our lips instead of grumbling. Father, thank you for sending us our sweet healer. Your son who has healed us from our sin. As Moses threw the tree into the bitter water, you threw your son into the bitter waters of judgment so that none of the diseases of Egypt would come upon us. Thank you for the sweet water of salvation you give us through your son, Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.